0: I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas, Senior Pastor here at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Missouri. Missouri. We welcome all who are with us for this Pastor's Bible class. We are going to be doing something a little bit different today. Next Sunday is the 27th, of course, and that's post-Christmas, the Sunday between Christmas and New Year's. And so what I thought, instead of doing those lessons, I'm going to take a look at what is coming up on Epiphany. And Epiphany is usually January 6th. And we, like most churches, will be celebrating it actually on January 3. We will not be having Bible class here live next week, so KFUO will have to play an archive class. So I thought it would give us an opportunity to take a look at the readings for Epiphany. Before doing that, I want to welcome all who are here in our gymnasium. And there are sheets over on the side, if you don't have one yet, uh, with Scripture lessons on them that we'll be looking at. We welcome all who join us in the greater St. Louis area on KFUO Radio, 850 AM, and, of course, also all who join us online at KFUO.org. Before we dive into our lessons, let's begin with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the way you have made known to us the way of salvation through your Son, Jesus Christ. Just as the star guided the wise men, the magi, to the newborn king, we thank you that in our lives also, through the water of holy baptism and the working of your Holy Spirit, the King of kings and Lord of lords has been brought to us as well. And we thank you for this opportunity to study your word together. We pray your Holy Spirit's guidance and blessing upon that study. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, if I don't say it, a blessed and joy-filled Christmas to all who are here, and also to our listeners online and in the St. Louis area. It's, of course, a big week coming up, and uh, we look forward to the celebration once again of our Savior's birth. We're going to look, as I said, at Epiphany, and I'm actually going to take these um, lessons in reverse. We'll start with the actual account of the Epiphany in Matthew, which is, uh, if you're here, is on the back of of the sheet. And the word epiphany means to make something known, to reveal something. We use that phrase uh, a little bit even in our, in our conversation. Somebody will say, it was an epiphany to me, meaning something that they didn't know before, they now know, you know it, it was a making known something. Okay? Now, in this case, we're going to see that it is making known the Savior's birth and the coming of the Savior in this case, to Gentiles, to Magi. And we're going to talk about the Magi a little bit. And you will see, as is usually the case in festival uh, uh, services, that all three readings have sort of this same idea of making known the Savior, but especially to the nations or to the Gentiles. Okay? So we'll look at first the... uh, gospel lesson, which is Matthew 2, 1 through 12. And I'd like to take just a few minutes, read through the whole thing, so we get a sense of the entire uh, uh, what's happening here, the scope of what's happening, and then we'll go back and kind of take it apart verse by verse. So starting with verse 1 of Matthew 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying... and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. All right, so there we have it. Let's go back now to verse 1, and there's quite a bit to talk about here, actually, even in this first birth, uh, verse. Um, it starts off, and there's no, notice there's no specific time here. It just says, now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. We don't know exactly how long it was, Uh, And really have no way of knowing however uh, one thing we do know is that Mary and Joseph and Jesus were no longer at the manger because we're gonna see when we get down to verse 11 notice where the magi find him in a house so we know that some time has passed and the original predicament that Mary and Joseph had, that being that there was no other place for them to spend the night uh, when Christ is born, has taken care of itself. They have found a lodging in a house. Okay. Um, so again, we don't know how, how long, but it, notice how Matthew sets this in, in, in scope, though. In the days of Herod the king. Now, Herod the King would be Herod the Great. And Herod the Great is uh, quite an interesting guy, to say the least. Uh, He was one of the great builders uh, in all of human history, frankly, Uh, was a very, in in some sense, very successful. Uh, They call him King. He was just simply the, the Roman ruler of the area of Judea. But quite frankly, uh, especially during his later years, um, I'll say this nicely, uh, really had some problems uh, emotionally, we believe, and probably also some sort of disease. I'll talk about that for just a minute. Probably the best sort of synopsis that I found to describe this Herod the Great is in the uh, Concordia commentary series on Matthew, and it's the one that's authored by Dr. Jeffrey Gibbs, now retired professor at Concordia Seminary. But this is a quote, actually, from Matthew Carson, uh, another um, uh, scholar. And just to stop, I'll, I'll go through this. Just kind of, this is just a, a description of Herod the Great. Herod the Great, as he is now called, was born in 73 BC, and was named King of Judea by the Roman Senate. In 40 B.C., so that's quite a long time he's going to be ruling there, by 37 B.C., he had crushed, with the help of Roman forces, all opposition to his rule. Son of an Indomian antipater, he was wealthy, politically gifted, intensely loyal, an excellent administrator, and clever enough to remain in the good graces of successive Roman emperors. His famine relief was superb, and his building projects, including the temple begun 20 B.C., were admired even by his foes. But he loved power, inflicted incredibly heavy taxes on the people, and resented the fact that many Jews considered him an usurper. In his last days suffering an illness that compounded his paranoia, he turned to cruelty and in fits of rage and jealousy, killed close associates, his wife, Mariamne, of Jewish descent from the Maccabeans, and at least two of his sons." So again, trying to put him in perspective, he, in 20 BC, started a renovation of the temple that was incredible, by all accounts. That temple would eventually be destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans but uh, greatly, greatly added on to both the size and the quality of the temple for God's people. Now, he is not a Jew, but is doing this. Uh, his motive, perhaps, to curry the favor of the people, we don't know for sure, but an incredible builder. Um, you may, Some of you in here may have been to Masada, uh, or at least seen pictures of it down by the Dead Sea, uh, not too far from the, uh, the caves where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, the, the Qumran community. And uh, you can go there today and take a tour of it. It is an incredible fortress. Uh, that was his building. And, and getting water up there by, by slaves back at that time. There's not a whole lot of water around there to be brought up. Um, so in, in that sense, and, and we could talk about the Herodium as well, Caesarea Maritime, if any of you have ever been over seen that, it's right on the coast, just north of uh, Tel Aviv, Uh, is again an incredible building project with a big track around it, a big uh, amphitheater, and so on, big pools. So on the one hand, you could say, as this author did, that he was an incredible builder. He was politically very savvy. But especially during his latter years, it seems that he became increasingly paranoid uh, of other people who were going to overthrow him, overtake him. There's a lot of speculation about uh, what he exactly suffered from. Um, There I know that when we were there, our tour guide really conjectured that he thought it might have been leprosy that he was struggling with in the latter years of his life, because in his uh, at Masada, you can see this, for example, there are pools of water right next to each other, sort of baths. And they get increasing, they would have the slaves outside pumping the fire to heat the water in the one that's closest to the outside. And they figure he would plunge from one pool to the next, getting increasingly warmer to help soothe his skin, if it was leprosy. If it was leprosy. We don't know for sure. Uh, also, again, something definitely not right with him. As the author indicated, he killed his, uh, one of his wives, Miriamne. And um, she was supposedly so beautiful that instead of having her buried, he had her preserved in a pool of honey. And this was at Caesarea Maritime for about six or seven years, just so that he could come out and gaze upon her beauty, if you can imagine that. Um, and he killed two of his sons, also, who he thought were going to be a threat to his his rule. Uh, the Caesar at the time said that it was, it was safer to be Herod's pig than it was to be one of his sons. Uh, so at any rate, it, it, we could, I could go on and on. We could talk for a long time. But it's not a Bible class about Herod. But I, I, I want to just kind of lay the scene for you. In other words, this is the guy who is um, Oh, here's, here's one more thing while I'm going on this. this. Um, he, in his latter years, uh, really wanted there to be a mass grieving when he would die, that everybody would be in, in terrible grief at his death. So he goes to Jericho, where he thinks he's going to die, and he invites a great number of um, distinguished uh, men down to Jericho. And he gives the order that upon his death, all of these distinguished men are to be killed so that there will be great grieving. So again, this just gives you an idea of what we're dealing with here. This is the, this is the guy that the Magi are coming and asking, wh- who, where is the one who's born King of the Jews? OK? So that just kind of sets, sets the stage uh, for for what's going to be coming here, now, he com- they, they come and and uh, notice there behold, wise men. Now, wise men. This, the Greek word here is magi, and we don't know uh, unfortunately a lot about these guys. Uh, does it say that? First of all, let me ask you this: Does it say they're kings? No, not even not even the translation says kings. It really wasn't around until around the sixth century, when they were, were uh, kind of thought of as kings for some reason. Uh, most of uh, most of the scholars think that they that these magi were involved in uh, I- interpreting dreams. You see this back in the Book of Daniel, for example. You've got them interpreting, uh, or at least trying to interpret, the dreams, um, astrology, and perhaps some say also some sort of uh, magic or, or sorcery of that, of that sense. We really just don't know, though, exactly what they were. They, they do appear to be wise. I, I'm not saying that they're not wise, but we don't know exactly what their role was, what, what the uh, activities that they would do uh, would be. Also, so uh, how many of them are there, does it say here? Doesn't say, does it? Now, And uh, so, um, typically, how many do we see in manger scenes? Three. And I think that is probably due to the three gifts that are mentioned here. We don't know. They might have brought other stuff as well. But there are three gifts mentioned here. So a couple things. Uh, number one, we don't know how many there were. There may have been three. There may have been 33. We don't know. Uh, also, they weren't at the manger. They came to the house. Now, I always say, when I, when I do this, I always say, now, don't go home and throw away your, your manger scene, okay? <laughs> you don't have to do that. They're definitely involved in, in the story, just not at the point where they're at the manger yet, or still, I should say. And so, uh, again, just to, and, and again, you, you, the song, We Three Kings of Orient Are, <laughs> not, quite, not quite accurate, okay? But at any rate, they come. And notice there, they come from the east. Again, we're not told exactly where they came from, uh, which territory or which country. Uh, Persia is mentioned as a possibility, Babylon, even south. Some have fought down near um, Egypt. In fact, that lines up a little bit better with the Old Testament lesson in terms of where it's from. But again, we don't know. It's simply from the east. And notice there, they have come, they, they um, Ask the question then, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star. Now, there there are some scholars who think that God simply used a naturally occurring phenomenon. And this is a good week to talk about that, because uh, we have this, this phenomenon happening here this week, sometimes referred to as the Christmas star. Where it's uh, Jupiter and what's the other planet that's lining up with it? Jupiter, Saturn uh, are lining up together to, to be one bright light, and I think it's visible in the southwest at night if it's going to be clear, if, if we don't have clouds, of course. So some scholars think, well, God simply used a naturally occurring, so-called naturally occurring in creation, uh, star. Um, I've always favored the idea that it was not that, but that it was a particularly special created star for this purpose. And the reason I say that is what happens later on, that that same, and it's called his star. It's not just called you know, some star, it's called his star. And notice there that later on, it's going to go and lead them directly over the house where the Savior is. So personally, I've always favored that one rather than just again a naturally occurring phenomenon uh, out there in the solar system. Now, notice they're asking who did they come to see? They want to see a king. Now they're not they're not really saying much in terms of a, a confession of any kind of uh, you know uh, faith in him to to be a Messiah or to be a. Uh, a savior they're simply we want to see the one who was born the king of the jews we saw his star and have come to worship him Will worship him as what as a king as a great king or something more than that now look at look at Herod's response when the king heard this he was troubled well why would he be troubled He's, he's thinking, the king, the king of the Jews, that's me, right? Or at least in this territory, that's me, you know? And, and he's, again, note, keep in mind his paranoia, okay? And notice there, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Why do you think all Jerusalem would be troubled when Herod's troubled? Yeah, that's, you know, it's, uh, it's like, what's that, uh, when, Herod, when Herod sneezes, all of Jerusalem catches a cold, right? I mean, they're, they're worried that he is going to take out uh, his paranoia and eventually, for those of you that know the rest of the story, he does, doesn't he? When he later is going to find out that he was duped here a little bit and they, they didn't come back, the Magi didn't come back the same way they had gone, he orders the what's today called the slaughter of the innocents, the slaughter of all male children two years and under in that in that region. So they had, we might say, a good right to be concerned and to be fearful. Okay? So, what does he do? Verse 4, he assembles the chief, all the chief priests. We think that was probably the former ones and the current one, and the scribes. Now, the scribes would be the ones who would be not only copying the text from one uh, to another, one scroll to another, but they also, as a result of being daily in contact with the text, Uh, became known as experts of the text. They they were the ones you went to with a question. And they actually taught also because, again, they were so familiar with the texts uh, that they would actually teach. So Herod is, in effect, calling in the brain trust here. And he is simply going to try to find out. But notice his question. He inquired of them. Notice where the Christ was to be born. Not, it doesn't say there where the king of the Jews was to be born, where the Christ was to be born. So in seeing that, we think that this guy who uh, brought so uh, much enhancement to the temple for God's people was apparently familiar with prophecies that the, uh, a savior, an anointed one, or a Christ, a messiah, was to come and that, thought that this this might be the one that these magi are coming to see. So where was it he's supposed to be born, first of all? They told him, Bethlehem of Judea, and here we're quoting Micah 5, verse 2, uh, where there's a clear prophecy there by the prophet Micah. Actually, about 700 years before Christ would walk this earth, Micah singles out Bethlehem as the place in, in It's actually quoted here. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. And boy, what a great reference that is, a leader who is a shepherd. And we can't help but think of Jesus in John chapter 10 referring to himself as the good shepherd, the one who lays down his life for his sheep and gives them eternal life. So uh, that a great, you know, again, prophecy and fulfillment here, um, uh, Micah to Christ, and Christ will come to gather his flock. Now, uh, notice the, notice the uh, conniving here, I guess you would say, of Herod. Uh, verse 7, Then Herod summoned wise men secretly, the magi secretly, and ascertain from them what time the star had appeared. So what's he doing here? He's calculating that apparently he's trying to line up that star and thinking to himself, okay, if it's in Bethlehem, but what, when did it happen? And so he's kind of trying to bring together the time and the place. He's thinking that, okay, whenever the star appeared, that must have been when this child was born. Okay? And so he's trying to put those two together. Um, and apparently, they, I don't know, they we're not told what they, what they said to him or what they answered him back. Uh, verse 8: uh, And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Well, I don't, I don't think we. Uh, can take Herod uh, at his word, can we? He, he does not want to come and worship this child. He wants to come and eliminate this child, get rid of this child. And uh, there again, you see how slick and conniving he is uh, and savvy he is. So they went, these, uh, verse 9, uh, after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, whenever it says behold like that, there's something big coming. The star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. See, there again, I think, to me at least, I think it's a special star that is designed specifically for this purpose, Uh, not just a a naturally occurring uh, solar phenomenon. Verse 10, when they saw the star, notice here the piling on of joy. They, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. It's <laughs> piling up the joy. They, they, were, they were overcome with joy. And notice now what they did. Uh, they, they go into the house. They see the child with Mary, his mother. Who's not mentioned there? Joseph. We don't know where he was. Uh, at this point, but he's not there. They see, it was only mentioned anyway, is, is the child and Mary. And notice here, they fall down and worship him. And there's a lot of conjecture again. Are they worshiping him as a, merely a king for this nation? Uh, others would say, no, they realize he is more than just a king, more than just an earthly ruler, but much more than that. Now, there's been a lot written about the three gifts that they brought uh, with them. Uh, they are gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Some will try to say that this is, the gold is connected with the fact that they recognize uh, Jesus as a king. The frankincense is a reference to his divinity because we use incense in worship, with our prayers, especially back at that time. And the myrrh, what would that be uh, related to, do you think? His death, yes. Because uh, we see, for example, later on that Nicodemus uh, comes bearing 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes uh, after Jesus has been taken down from the cross. And uh, Joseph of Arimathea, remember, comes and claims the body Places in a tomb there that had never been used, and then we see we hear of Nicodemus coming with that. Um, As I say, this has been uh, written by scholars over the years. There are some scholars that that say absolutely, positively, that uh, this is God's way of showing that this uh, Jesus is 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 going to be a king or is a king, that he is divine. And that he is going, his sacrificial death is what awaits him. Others say, no, 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 there's nothing in the text that indicates that, and we're sort of reading into it uh, that. Um, I don't know myself personally, I'm not, I don't get all that excited about it one way or the other. Uh, They brought, the the bottom line is they brought valuable gifts for him. They bow down and worship him. Uh, And now notice, God takes care of what's about to happen, that they, be, they were warned in a dream not to return to Herod, and they departed to their own country by another way. You know, you stop and conjecture, what would have happened had they, these, these guys apparently didn't, they had no idea uh, whether they had never heard of Herod and his, his ways or what, but it seems like they had no idea in, until they are interrupted by a dream that they shouldn't go back to Herod. And just think of what would have happened had they gone back to Herod and Herod finds out exactly where Christ is and would obviously want to come and kill him uh, and we've got to say that God is protecting here his plan of salvation he is not going to allow Herod the opportunity to eliminate Christ especially even at such a young age here so they are warned in a dream we know that Joseph is going to be warned in a dream and is going to take uh, the child and family to Egypt until Herod is no longer on the scene anymore. And that's, again, right when we have that killing of the uh, male children two years and under. Okay? So bottom line here, on Epiphany, we celebrate the making known of the Savior, the birth of the Savior, especially to Gentiles now, these these magi who come. And we'd love to know more about these guys, especially what they did when they went back home, after they returned back home. And you would think, at least, would be telling everybody far and wide about what they had experienced and about this child and so on. Uh, there are some, I would say, uh, they're certainly not biblical, but there are some legends out there as well. Uh, again, I would not bet the farm on, on any of those. But you would, you would at least think, even from just a human standpoint, that they would go back to wherever they came from and, and be letting it known far and wide what they had experienced there. Okay? All right. A little bit of a connection. The epiphany, making known the Savior to Gentiles. How does God do that today? Not so much with a, with a special star, but how does God make known the Savior today? Through His Word, Yeah through the, what we call the means of grace, through the word that is either spoken or read or proclaimed or taught, through the, the, the sacrament of baptism, water and the word, where, again, he creates a life-giving faith in Jesus Christ. So God is still making known the, the Savior uh, to Gentiles and Jews and everybody else in this world through his word this day. This continues. But here we have the first recorded, at least, uh, revelation to the Gentiles that the Savior is born. Okay? All right. So let me stop there. Any questions, any comments about the, the account here? Don? Done? yeah great question do we think the magi were exposed to the uh, gospel or maybe the prophecies concerning the coming there's been a lot of speculation about that that as uh, so-called wise men uh, that they had some understanding of the prophecies leading up to but we don't really it, it you know that section there where herod calls in the prophets we don't have any, any indication there that the magi somehow knew where he was, was supposed to be born. In fact, they go to Jerusalem, don't they? They follow the star of Jerusalem, which from a human standpoint, you would think that it ought to be like Jerusalem, it ought to be Rome, it ought to be some you know, really uh, significant city, and uh, it's Bethlehem. So to some extent, were they looking for someone to come? Perhaps so. And this, they were simply following this star. And um, it's interesting that they seem to think that a ruler, someone great, is coming to the Jews. That's about as far as it seems like their understanding is at this point. And they come and they ask, where is the one who's born king of the Jews? But we really don't know beyond that. How much they knew, uh, had they read, for example, the prophet Isaiah? You know, it's around the the same time, roughly, as Micah. Uh, We just don't know in the end. Uh, Ruth, first, then Janet. Yes. Yes. Yes, and and, uh, the the comment was, if they came from the east, God's people were in captivity in Babylon, uh, as we were saying. And I mentioned the book of Daniel before, and there's a lot of speculation that that might have been the connection, that when God's people were in captivity... That, uh, you know, Daniel and others that, you know, were not specifically written about probably uh, may have, again, uh, brought the, the knowledge of the prophecies and the knowledge of the expectations that there is going to be one coming from God to this people. That's again, that's the that's the speculation that if they knew something, that would be a good connecting point for them. Janet, do you have something too. Yeah, we don't know who they were asking in particular. It doesn't say in the text. They would come to town, we think, maybe would they would they seek the elders of the town, for example, and start asking, you know, where is he? Um, and and uh, it just says saying. So you kind of get the idea that they're just asking around. As if people should know, you know, if this king was born, people should know it, but they're getting no response here from the people. And then Herod gets word of it, you know, probably through one of his staff or, you know, one of his uh, associates, and that's when he reels them in and says, all right, you know, and and has the the dialogue back and forth with them. But, yeah, it's a good question. We don't know. It doesn't really say who they were asking. Uh, They just came saying, where is he who's been born King of the Jews? So you get the idea they're kind of asking around the town. (laughs) Okay? Anything else? Good questions. I wish we knew more about the details, but uh, about as far as we can go. All right, let's go backwards and go to Ephesians, chapter 3. And Paul here in Ephesus, I don't know if any of you have been to Ephesus, but um, it is quite a, uh, it's still very, very, uh, it's a, a very uh, tourist uh, place. Uh, well, it used to be before COVID, but we uh, will probably return to that. Um Sort of a cosmopolitan city. They had a false god there named Artemis, uh, to which there was a temple dedicated in uh, Ephesus. Uh, It's also, you know, on the side, it's the place where John, the disciple John, is said to have spent the rest of his years uh, sort of the center of his operation in Asia Minor. And the legend is that uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, uh, also uh, lived there with him in a house. Uh, remember from the cross that Jesus asked John to care for Mary and said, Mary, behold your son to her. Um, the, well, if you go there today, uh, you can get on a tour bus and go and see uh, what they say is the very house where John and Mary were uh, for the rest of their life. I, uh, I'll just tell you this. On our tour, we skipped that entirely. That I mean, that's a is not the house. Okay? Now, it's somewhere in the area. I'm not, I'm not discounting the fact that, that that happened. But like a lot of things, you have to be a little uh, discerning. Um, this is one of four epistles that Paul wrote from prison. Uh, Ephesians is the first one. Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon were all written by Paul. He was actually in house arrest in Rome when he wrote these. And remember now, Paul gets commissioned by Christ to go and proclaim the gospel to a certain group of people. Remember who it was? Gentiles. Gentiles. This is how this fits in so well uh, here for uh, Epiphany. That Paul is commissioned to go to the Gentiles. It doesn't mean that he didn't go. Okay, there we go. That's a little better. It doesn't mean he didn't go. Okay, is that? Yeah. Can you hear me? Okay. Sounds like we're all right. Not sure what happened, or I just totally lost it. Lost the power. All right. Uh, so let's get into the uh, lesson here. Ephesians, we're going to look at Ephesians 3 1 through 12. So let's just go and we'll go through it piece by piece. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. So here in the first line, we get the fact that Paul is in prison. Uh, or is a prisoner. This wasn't the one where he was in the, the worst Roman prison prior to his death, but again, the house arrest. Uh, on behalf of you Gentiles. So he's saying, uh, you've got to not take this the wrong way. This could be taken with you know, sort of the idea that it's because of you guys that I'm here in this prison. But actually, it's a proclamation to the Gentiles that puts in there. Assuming you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. So the stewardship of God's grace is, you might say, Christ's management of the gospel. And remember, where was Paul converted from being one who was a uh, persecutor of the church, who would actually uh, uh, arrest Christians? He was in Acts chapter nine on his way to Damascus, right. And there the risen Lord appeared to him. And Paul is saying that it was Christ's management of the gospel. His um, uh, giving out the uh, gospel in this way that it was Christ's idea that Paul go to the Gentiles. This wasn't something Paul dreamt, dreamt up. It wasn't, it wasn't a plan of Paul's. It instead is Christ's plan that he go to the Gentiles and... Starting at verse 3, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. And that mystery here is merely something that uh, Paul uses this term uh, throughout his epistles, is something that he would not have known by himself. It had to be revealed to him, in this case, by the risen Christ. Verse 5, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So it wasn't quite as well known before, but now it's really being revealed to the apostles, so to uh, John, for example, and Barnabas and others. This mystery is, so here's the definition of the mystery, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That is the mystery that Paul says is now being made known. It it was not nearly as well known back prior, but now is being made known to the apostles and prophets and others. This, uh, just for a second here, When you read in the book of Acts, it's clear, and Galatians is clear as well, that this issue was the first big controversy that Christians dealt with after the resurrection and ascension of Christ. And and you get in... Well, first of all, in Acts 8, you get the fact that Samaritans can receive the gospel and believe. And uh, the officials, uh, James and John come down from Jerusalem to check this out. Is this really true? That Samaritans can believe, and they, they confirm it. Then in Acts 10, at Antioch, you get Gentiles believing the gospel. And Barnabas comes from Jerusalem, you know? It's kind of like, uh, like the Senate official coming from St. Louis to check, check this out and, and authorize it or confirm it, right? And so this was the big controversy. What about these Gentiles? And the big question, first of all, it's amazing that they can receive the gospel, the the Jewish Christians thought, and that they're included with us. Secondly, do they have to become like Jews? In other words, follow all of the Jewish laws and even the dietary laws and some of the other rules and regulations. Do they have to first conform to that? And Galatians is written by Paul against some who would say absolutely it's not just the gospel it's the gospel and in that case following all the rules and regulations especially circumcision and you finally find in Acts 15 that they have a the first big church conference basically in Acts 15 and sort it out and the the final answer is no they do not have to become uh, like Jews, it is simply the gospel, and the Jews say, "But please, you know, don't don't be eating meat that's been offered to idols and things like that. You know, it's kind of uh, be sensible about these things." So that this was the big controversy that uh, first uh, the church dealt with after Christ's resurrection and ascension, uh, the Gentile issue, um, going on. Uh, Verse 7, of this gospel, I was made a minister. That's probably a reference to the preaching office. Um, A minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. Paul, uh, throughout his epistles, you'll see him mindful of the fact that he is one of the biggest recipients of God's grace. And if we define what grace is... It's the undeserved, unmerited love of God for you. And why would Paul be so very mindful of the grace of God, do you think, or so very appreciative of the fact that he's a recipient of the grace of God? Right, right, yeah. Because of what he formerly was, that he was one actually working against the will of God. And... And he sees himself as one who was on the wrong side of God's will. And yet, in spite of that, God's undeserved, unmerited love is given to him so that not only is he saved, but God is going to use him to to further the gospel throughout Asia Minor. Um, Verse 8, here again, we get the same idea, the same emphasis from Paul. To me... Though I am the very least of all the saints, and again, due to his persecution, this was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things. And that mystery is, again, we think a reference not so much just to the Gentiles, but the mystery that that Christ is in fact the Messiah. He is in fact the Savior. Uh, verse 10, So that, I notice here, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be now made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Notice there, who is to make this known now, this mystery known? Through the church. And, you know, we are uh, very mindful of that as... Missouri Synod Lutherans, that our mission, our goal, uh, that, uh, our, uh, what we have been given to do is to preach Christ and Him crucified, and risen, and ascended, and reigning. And uh, not to, uh, not to be speaking about politics, or economics, or whatever the latest fad is, but to preach Christ, to make this known And uh, I hope that that we do a good job of that, at least in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, of making that known to to everyone and keeping everyone in that same knowledge. Uh, Verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So notice there that we talked there a little bit about the eternal plan of God. Even before the foundation of the world, God has this plan for the salvation of all mankind and the restoration of his creation, we might say, too. Um, And uh, the eternal purpose, verse 12, In whom, so Christ, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. It is uh, only through Christ that we have access to the Father. Without Christ, we are still in our sins. We are still children of wrath, as, as Paul says. Uh, it is only through Christ that we have access to God and through, uh, through faith in Christ, forgiveness, and access to God. That's why so many times in church you will hear us end our prayers And say, all this we pray in the name of Jesus, or in the name of your Son, or something along those lines. It's a recognition that it is only through Christ that we have access to the Father. And through the forgiveness that comes through Him. Otherwise, we have no right to stand before God. And and we stand there not in our own righteousness, but in the righteousness of Christ Himself. Okay? So... That is a kind of a quick run through that epistle lesson, which, again, notice the link here with the gospel lesson, the Gentile emphasis here, that Paul is a proclaimer of this good news to the Gentiles and spends uh, his ministry in that way. Okay? Any questions or comments before we move on to the Old Testament? Yes, Ruth? Yeah. (laughs) Oh, great, great comment. The comment was that uh, shows that God has a sense of irony, or maybe we could even say a sense of humor (laughs) in this way, that he takes Paul, who elsewhere writes that he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, and, uh, you know, by birth a Jew, a student of Gamaliel. I mean, he lists his Jewish credentials, and um, advancing far beyond any uh, others in his own party. And here, this guy, who's a Jew of Jews and a Pharisee of Pharisees, God says... You're going to go to the Gentiles, right? And so, yeah, that's a that's a great point. You would think, and on the other hand, Paul was, with his educational background and um, sort of a, a man of great learning and intellect. You know, you can tell when when he writes uh, his logic and so on. So in, in other ways, he was a great tool to be used by God in that. But that's a great point. Sometimes you do see. This is this is a shadow of a comparison, but you might see a pastor, for example, who grew up in a city, and he's out in the middle of a cornfield somewhere, and, and God is working great things there, you know, through the, through the pastor's proclamation, or the other way around, somebody who grew up in a real rural area, and they're in the heart of a big metropolitan area. So it's not always by, I guess you'd say it's not always by human characteristics, is it, that God, that God calls people and assigns them to certain places. It's what God has in mind, and sometimes it is not what you would have expected, right? And yet God is at work even in the midst of that. Um, Before we get into the Old Testament, I I had another little thing I just wanted to discuss here, and that is we talked just a little bit ago when we were in Ephesians, and especially when we were in the Gospel lesson, about how it seems that somehow a lot of the Jews did not understand somehow that this Savior that was coming and this salvation that was coming was going to be for Gentiles and for all people. And, you know, this has always kind of baffled me a little bit because when you look in the Old Testament, there are plenty of places, I think at least, where this is brought forth. You think of all the way back to Genesis 12 when God calls Abraham and he says at the end, I think it's in verse 3, that... um, Yeah, verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and here it is, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And that is normally understood to mean that through the line of Abraham, and then further on down through the line of David and so on, the Savior is going to come. All nations of the earth will be blessed as a result of you and what's going to happen. Another one that that came to my mind was when the temple is dedicated. uh, In in 2 Chronicles 6, and Solomon has this chapter-long prayer at the dedication of the temple. Listen to this one section, starting at verse 32. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your great name, and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm when they come and pray toward this temple then hear from heaven your dwelling place do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your own people Israel and may know that this house I have built bears your name so to me that's just amazing that here Solomon would, would pray actually for, and he's not saying if, you know, uh, he's saying when the foreigner comes and prays here, uh, God answer their prayers and do for them as they ask. And so again, I'm thinking there seem to be some acknowledgment here that this is not going to be just the people of not just the descendants of Abraham, but even more. Then Psalm 22. All the ends of the earth shall rem- remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Again, all the families of the nations will worship before you. And then finally, we could go on and on with this, but in the New Testament, in Luke 2, we've got the nunc dimittis, the word spoken by Simeon. When he sees the Christ child, 40 days old, is brought to the temple and presented. And remember how that goes? Um, a light to reveal you to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. So this is something that, you know, you've got those questions that you want to ask when you get to heaven. That's going to be mine. Uh, one of mine, anyway. I'm sure I have others. <laughs> but how did we go all the way through the Old Testament where there appear to be numerous uh, spots where it seems apparent that this salvation that God is going to come, bring and, and is going to come is going to go far beyond just one nation, that the nations are all going to be included in this. And that's, that's again, what we see happening uh, in, in the gospel lesson uh, on Epiphany. All right, we've got a few minutes left. Let's just go to Isaiah 60, uh, 1 through 6. And again, we're going to see the light coming, the nations coming. Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Let's stop there for just a moment. It's almost like, wake up, people. You know, arise and shine. Uh, and God's people would be reading this as they're in captivity in Babylon. Just before this, in chapter 59, God has said he's going to send a redeemer, one who is going to come uh, to those in Jacob who turn from their transgression, declares the Lord. And now we get the fact that your light has come. So they've been sitting in darkness. Now the light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon them. And notice their darkness, they would be in darkness, and that darkness would cover the whole earth in verse 2. Uh, but the Lord will arise upon you. And whenever you have capital L O R D, that is the name, the personal name for God, Yahweh in the Old Testament, the Lord is coming upon you. And notice there in verse 3 that the nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. A connection there uh, to uh, the epiphany event, obviously, and in the case of the nations coming, the magi coming, and even more beyond that, of course, later on, uh, when we 've got uh, what happens at uh, Pentecost, the missionary journeys of Paul to the Gentiles, and so on, goes much beyond much beyond that uh, quickly let 's go to verse four now, four through nine, you get this incredible influx of wealth and riches. And it's more than just that, though, because it's the people who have been converted that are bringing their offerings to the Lord. So this is not just, you know, they're going to get a big haul of of earthly goods here. No, these people have been converted, and they are bringing uh, their, their wealth and offering it. Okay? Which, I guess, if you're connecting with the gospel lesson... Maybe there's a point in favor that of the Magi actually recognizing Jesus as more than just an earthly ruler, but something much more than that. But anyway, starting in verse 4, Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Probably a reference to their coming back from their captivity in Babylon, coming back to Jerusalem, that beautiful... You know, your son shall come from afar. They were scattered throughout the Babylonian Empire. Daughters shall be carried on the hip. Kind of a, a nice way, a loving way of seeing the homecoming happening. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exalt. So they have this emotional response of joy uh, when, this, when uh, the Lord comes, when, when the, the light of the Lord comes. Here comes all the, the abundance here. Because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. Actually, for hundreds of years, the wealth was going in the opposite direction. God's people were paying uh, wealth out. You might say protection money uh, so they wouldn't be run over. And they were being taken advantage of. Now it's going to flow back to God's people. A, verse 6, a multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. And all those from Sheba, those nations were actually down east of of Egypt and east of Sinai also. uh, The ones that are mentioned here anyway. Notice here, they shall bring gold and frankincense. The only thing we're missing there from the, uh, the Magi is the myrrh. And here's the important line though, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. So again, the, this is a beautiful picture of Gentile converts coming. First of all, it's of God's people coming back from captivity. That's sprinkled throughout here. But also, even more than that, of Gentile nations coming as well to God's people. So they come back, they are restored from their captivity, uh, and also other nations are blessed as well. This is what we were reading before, uh, all the way back in Genesis 12, with through Abraham, all nations of the earth shall be blessed. Okay? All right. And again, remember, there is no, uh, it's a tradition here at St. Paul's, no Bible class or Sunday school next Sunday, the Sunday between Christmas and New Year's. But we will be back here in two weeks, which is the Sunday we will be celebrating Epiphany uh, in our church services for that, that weekend. Let's close then with the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. Thank you.